Now, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Colossians 2, 18 and 19. I'm continuing to preach on what is the church. Colossians 2, 18 to 19. This is the Word of the Lord. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word and think about your church that you would bless our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So as I said, the last three Sunday mornings, I've been answering the question, what is the church? And really asking that question and answering it because the draw to individualism in our society is just a constant. It's a constant draw, right? And, um, And society is getting more and more difficult for us, right? I think I've said this in previous weeks, but Coming together in big groups, we do via Zoom and social media today. And you're essentially alone together, right? You're alone together. Most of our existence now is alone together, right? And so what we do on a Sunday morning as the church, we gather together and smell each other's armpits, is just doesn't happen much anymore. Okay. I won't make any recommendations about which armpits. No, I, I won't go there. But do you get what I'm saying? We need to know one another, right? We need to not be alone together. We need to be together, and that's the glory of the church. And there's just a fight in our culture right now about this, and, and we need to make sure that we know that God made the church, and it's glorious And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And so Christians are always going to be weirdly gathering together. They even do it when it's illegal. Right? You think of Scotland and the conventicles and getting together when it was very dangerous for them to get together. You think of the persecuted church in China where there's an underground church. And yet, you know, we might tell them, well, be prudent. You wouldn't want to die for your faith. And they're dying to get together to hear the word preached. It's mind-boggling to us. We don't even get it. We'd be way more prudent than that, right? But they so crave to be together with God's people that they will risk even their lives to be together. And so we continue on on this. What is the church? And so I hope the following ideas have come across clearly. The church is precious to God because the church is the wife of the Lamb. 
right? The wife of the Lamb, the bride of the Son of God. And if she is precious, beloved of God, the church should be beloved by us. That was my theological answer to what is the church. Being the bride of Christ, Jesus' affections are set there in ways that they're not set on us as individuals. God has eyes for his bride, right? And when you're connected to the body, you are his bride. But separate yourself, cut yourself off from that, you're, you know, um, cut yourself off from that, and you're trying to make Jesus have multiple brides, the gathered church and you refusing to gather together, right? But then there's some in the church who, who remain aloof even though they come together. In other words, they don't sink down into the church. They don't, they don't get involved in the ministries of the church, and they're like the appendix. You can cut it out. Throw it away, you never notice that they're, not, that they're not there, right? So they may be present, but they haven't, they haven't given of themselves to like um, minister in the church, to take up some ministry, to, to um, invest in. They haven't opened up their hearts to others. Anyway, I'm getting away from myself here. Being the bride of Christ, Jesus' affections are set on the gathered body in a way that they are not set on individuals. We've been constituted as a body of believers, all connected to our head, Jesus. Not being a part of the body means not being a part of the body means not being connected to the head. Jesus. As the passage I just read said, there is a growth that God gives to the body. Right? As she is connected to the head, Jesus Christ. So the body grows as a body connected to the head, right? And where's Jesus? Jesus is with the body. Jesus is in the church. Jesus is there, right? Especially there. And so this whole Colossians passage is just a, a picture of that, the body being given growth because connected to Jesus. Now, I, wanted, I want to turn this week to Think of the benefits, the blessings, the power we receive by being connected to the body which is connected to the head, Jesus Christ. I've made the case already that the church is necessary, though many of us may still think otherwise, especially if you grew up or if we grew up in a mainline evangelical church. But God is gracious, isn't he? God is is a gracious father. And what do fathers like to do? Fathers like to give gifts. Fathers do like to give gifts. I mean, a lot of people like to give gifts, but I think fathers really enjoy giving gifts, right? And God is a father who gives good gifts to his children. Not only does he save souls, but he pours out his fatherly kindness upon his sons and his daughters. He goes over the top, right? He could have just given us salvation and then not given us the church in which we could be nourished and strengthened and built up. He could have just said, yeah, suffer through your life, but then I'll save you. But he puts us in this glorious thing called the, the bride of Christ, for the entirety of our lives until he draws us to himself. 
And so in that, his kindness is sort of going over the top. So there, there are purely theological reasons why you and I should be committed to the church. But there are also pragmatic reasons, fringe benefits, wonderful gifts we receive in and through the church. In other words, the, the wife of the lamb has a good husband in Jesus Christ. Not only has he made her his wife, but he treats her like his beloved wife. He loves, he protects, and he governs her. All for her good, all for her building up, all for her sanctification, all for her purity, all for her joy. We not only take the name of our husband Jesus, but we as the church are provided for richly. He's a really good, good husband. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying there? Not only is Jesus the church's husband, but he is the perfect and good husband. Like a good husband, he acts always for the building up of his wife, the church. And so in what ways does the Son of God provide for his church? And again, I I must put this in contrast to our individualized conception of faith. There are blessings, blessings we gain in the church as the bride of Christ, that cannot be had as individuals outside of her, out in the wilderness, out doing your own thing. Remember, Jesus has one bride, not one billion. Separate yourself from the church, and though these following things aren't something you will experience. First, the church is where Jesus Christ strengthens and nourishes his people. It's where he feeds his people, the church. It's where he does it. How does Jesus provide um, his bride, the church, with such nourishment? Through teaching, through preaching. Through teaching and preaching, through exhortation, right? Through admonishment, teaching, exhortation. All of those things. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, And God is appointed in the church... First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. Notice that the passage says God has appointed these things in the church. That is the place God has put his apostles. That's an office that has stopped his prophets and now teachers and pastors today. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 makes the same point. There we read this, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Building up of the body of Christ, not the building up of of your brain, building up of the body of Christ. And again, a passage we looked at uh, a few weeks ago, 1 Timothy 3.15 says that the church is the household of God, which is the pillar of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. Now think of that last statement, that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The passage does not say Christian colleges are the pillar in support of truth. 
It does not say that Christian magazines are the pillar in support of the truth. It doesn't say that about Christian organizations like Crew and InterVarsity and Campus Outreach, right? Any other campus ministry. It doesn't say that those things are the pillar in support of the truth. It doesn't say that Christian publishers even are the pillar in support of the truth, right? As much as they proclaim that they are preserving the truth of God through their author's erudition and wisdom. No, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Calvin says of this honor that is placed on the church, he says this, listen, no ordinary enhancement is derived from this name that the church is called the pillar and support of the truth. Could it have been described in loftier language? Is anything more venerable or more holy than that everlasting truth which embraces both the glory of God and the salvation of men, where all the praises of heathen philosophy with which it has been adorned by its followers collected into one heap? What is that in comparison of the dignity of this wisdom which alone deserves to be called light and truth? and the instruction of life, and the way, and the kingdom of God. Now it is preserved on earth by the ministry of the church alone. The ministry of the church alone. We just don't think that is true, but the three passages I've read this morning all point to the church, not the parachurch, not the beside the church, the, the church where... The word of God is preached, and there is an Acts 2, A-C-T-S, Acts 2, focus on the sacraments and fellowship and prayer and preaching, right? You remember Acts 2.42? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, which we take as a, as a synecdoche for the sacraments, and to prayer. Breaking of bread, prayer, fellowship, the apostles' teaching. So Jesus particularly nourishes his people through the ministry of the church, particularly through the preaching of the word by pastors who know you and see you and interact with you. Yes, we would all like to take our sermons from someone who doesn't know us. Someone who doesn't see us bleary-eyed or angry or disciplining our children or getting impatient with our wife. It would be much easier to receive the Word of God from some man who abstractly knows that we're just, as, just ears listening to him be um, eloquent about some abstract principle. That's not preaching. Preaching is something that exists in the local body amongst a people who know one another, okay? And so, um, yes, it's painful. <laughs> yes, it's painful when you know that the pastor is exhorting you specifically from the pulpit, and that will happen if the Holy Spirit is at work in this church. That will happen. You will be exhorted by God through the mouth of an ass. Me. 
if the Holy Spirit is at work here. There's another way Jesus is a good husband to his bride. He heals his bride. He heals his bride. James 5.14 teaches us that the church is where healing comes. Is anyone among you sick? You remember the passage? Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. And there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And so that command, call for the elders of the church, can only happen in the local church. It does not say call for Benny Hinn. It does not say, and I would recommend against that, um, it does not say call for the traveling preacher or even the brother or sister or friend who is close to you. It says call for the elders of the church. And that is important. God has said that if, the, if you are sick, and I think that means both physically and spiritually, then get the elders involved in your life. Get them praying for you. Get them, yes, anointing you at points with oil and praying for healing. Yeah, we should do that with faith. There's another way the church alone is the place where Jesus nourishes his people. Think of the sacraments sacraments. That nourishment can't be had outside the church, though even here parachurch ministries are doing their best to encroach even on the sacraments, right? But if you think for a single moment about what the sacraments are, you begin to realize that if a parachurch ministry is practicing baptism, they don't have a clue about what baptism is, okay? Now, some of you are in crisis because you got baptized by a parachurch ministry in college. Let's talk about it sometime. But think about this. They approach the sacraments as sort of a sentimental act commemorating a, per, a person's personal decision. That's, that's what it is for them, right? Because it's a contextless baptism. And so it's just a sentimental expression, Right? But 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, the Holy Spirit teaches us what baptism is. Listen, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, did you hear that? Baptized into one body. Baptism marks entrance into the church. It doesn't, it, it's not a sentimental commemoration. It, it has, the sacraments have to do with the church. They are the specific property of the church. The sacraments. Baptism in the Lord's table. And so baptism marks entrance into the body of the church, the covenant people of God. Baptism is given to the church alone. So the church is the special place where Jesus nourishes his people through teaching, 
through healing, through the sacred ordinances, or we call them sacraments. All of those things, very important. Second, the church is the place where Jesus purifies his people. Purifies his people. Outside of the church, think of this, there's only self-discipline. And all of us are really bad at self-discipline. We know exactly how to give ourselves a pass every time. We can justify ourselves out of any sin. We really can. And if there's only self-accountability, it's a joke. If anybody is soft on us, it's ourselves. We will justify our sin much too easily without, without the help of the church and her leaders. We are much too soft on ourselves. Inside the church, there is real spiritual accountability, real authority, real discipline. God has raised up the church for just such a purpose, but our individualized me and my God attitude fights against that aspect of God's loving provision. This is good for us. We want to be sanctified. We want to become like our Father in heaven. Why would we not accept the discipline that is required to become that? It just doesn't make sense, but we do. We flee from it. Acts 20.28 says this to the elders who exercise this delegated authority from Jesus Christ. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That's the intimidating thing that church elders and pastors have to do is they have to shepherd blood-bought people. Shepherd the people that Christ died for. And he loves them. And he's constituted them in his bride. And so we have to be very, very, very wise and compassionate about how we do that delegated work of shepherding. You may notice at times when I am administering the Lord's table, as I will shortly, I preface the taking of the elements with this statement. That the Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And said, take, eat, this is my body. Do you realize that that is an expression of delegated authority, that God has delegated to his ministers? Real authority. And then I'm taking that authority and I'm saying, by the authority God has given me, I give to you. And that's real, right? And it's not a bad thing. Don't, don't be predisposed to hate authority, though you do. Um, though you may think it a bad thing for mere men to exercise real authority in the church, it is a mercy of God to you. This is my favorite quote from Calvin's Institutes, 431, four, cha- uh, book 4, chapter 3, um, Section 1, listen to what he says. Again, this is the best and most useful exercise in humility. When God accustoms us to obey his word, even though it is preached through men like us, and sometimes even by those of lower worth than we, which I think he's saying tongue-in-cheek. If he spoke from heaven, 
It would not be surprising if his sacred oracles were to be reverently received without delay by the ears and minds of all. For who would not dread the presence of his power? Who would not be stricken down at the sight of such majesty? Who would not be confounded at such boundless splendor? But when a puny man risen from the dust speaks in God's name, at this point, we best evidence our piety and obedience toward God if we show ourselves teachable toward this minister. It's all a part of God's plan. If we show ourselves teachable toward his minister, although he excels us in nothing. (laughs) It was for this reason then that he hid the treasure of his heavenly wisdom in weak and earthen vessels in order to prove more surely how much we should esteem it. Right, So even the fact that the bride of Christ's nourishment comes through a mere man, a mere man, (coughs) excuse me, (laughs) puny risen from the dust, (laughs) a mere man is meant to build us up, to make us humble, to make us teachable, right? To make us, I mean, if God spoke to us, directly from heaven, we would do what the Israelites did, and we would want the rocks to fall on us. It's the mercy of God that he has a mere puny man risen from the dust speaking to you in the preached word. Here's another way Jesus purifies us in the church. Matthew 18 tells us what we are to do if we find a man in his sin, and then the church is a necessary part of this, right? You know the process in Matthew 18. If your brother sins, you individually go show him his fault in private. If he listens, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the... What's the next word? The church. Like the church invisible? Like, shout it to the elect? No. Visible church. The church, your elder board. That is the church in microcosm, right? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You know, we're supposed to go through this process. But the final authority that God has set up is the church. And if he won't listen to the church, he's to be removed as an unbeliever as, and be cast out of the church. And without the church, that last step is impossible. And without that last step, do you know how many people would not have come to repentance? When the full pressure of the church started grinding on their conscience as they faced excommunication? That's all part of, part of the hope of restoring unrepentant, recalcitrant sinners, all of which, all of us could potentially fall under that. And so without the church, that last merciful prodding toward repentance does not exist, and we neglect it to the hurt of others. So many people will not become members of the church because they do not want man's authority over them, so they say, but what they are really rejecting is God's authority. 
He's the one who has set up this process. He's the one who set up this structure. He's the one who wrote it down in a book. He's the one who created the church. He's the one who purifies and washes and glorifies his bride. This is, this is his doing. And that is the beauty of church discipline. Of course it is not pleasant, but as Hebrews 12 says, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Jesus Christ will have a pure bride. The Holy Son of God must have a pure bride. He will have a pure bride. And he has delegated authority to the church so that she might present to him a pure, holy, blameless, beautiful bride. And so pray for your pastors and elders that they may give themselves with great zeal to the beautiful purity of the bride of Christ. And that, of course, involves preaching, teaching, admonition church discipline, all these other things that God has told us about in His Word. Finally, the church is the place where, and I hope this is what got you up this morning, the church is where Jesus meets with His people. First Peter 2, 1-10, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's building you up into this, this worship factory. These spiritual, the, the spiritual house for spiritual sacrifices. And that's our worship. That's our worship of Him. Jesus Christ has yoked himself together with his people, all being built up into a spiritual house. And together they constitute Zion, the church of the living God. And God calls his children together into the church because Jesus is there, the living cornerstone of the temple in Zion. Worship necessarily, you see, involves coming together into that household of God, into a race a priesthood, a nation, a people into the church which transcends every tongue, tribe, and nation. And what is the purpose of that coming together with a unified voice? Peter said it in verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He wants a church on earth just constantly proclaiming his excellencies. What an awful thing for, for worship to be cold when what we're doing is filling the earth with the announcement of God's excellencies, which we have personally benefited from time and time and time again. I mean, I know you can worship God when you are alone. You must. When you pray. When you sing his praises, you can do it individually, but the excellencies of God require a greater magnitude of praise. (laughs) 
It just requires a greater magnitude. That's why it's going to be every tribe, tongue, and nation at the end of the age. And they'll just be shouting the praises. And everybody who complained about the volume of worship on earth will be like, just get it louder. Give me more. More and more and more and more. (laughs) I want my eardrums to explode because God's praise is being appropriately magnified. I mean, you know how all of history ends. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that will be the proper magnitude when every knee bows and simultaneously confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. We give voice to that when we come together in the church. We anticipate that when we come together in the church. We meet with Jesus Christ and together with unified voice, the magnitude of our praise is then appropriate to our husband's glory and his power. Magnitude. That's my argument for megachurches. For those who love Jesus Christ, for those who know him, there is nothing more powerful, there is nothing more satisfying, nothing more refreshing than to see others glorifying him and singing his praises. That is where the redeemed of the Lord want to be. We don't want to be among the scoffers. We don't want to be among the worldlings. We do not want to be by ourselves. We we want to be with the redeemed of the Lord and look at them and their zeal and then have our own zeal inflamed by their worship of the Lord, right? And then ascribe together, all of us, the glory that's due His name. When the nation of Israel was finally dragged off into exile for her sins, the people sang a song. You know what it is? Psalm 137. They lament not only that they have been forced into a foreign land, but they have had to leave behind Jerusalem, the place of God's special presence in the temple, the place where they came together as a congregation to ascribe to God the glory due His name. Here's a portion of that psalm. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And so, oh, that our affections ran so deep when we couldn't get together on one Sunday with the people of God. You know, if I don't get to church next Sunday, I hope my, my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. Psalm 42, the sons of Korah are lamenting, where where is God? Where is God? And one of the things they lament lament is that they, they, they don't have the voice of joy anymore as they make a procession up to the temple. It says, these things I remember and I pour out my soul within me for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. And they're lamenting now that can't do that. 
So because our love is cold and the world tempts us with her mud pies, we think it optional whether we ascribe praise to God in the assembly of his people. And that ought not to be. Our hearts ought to be filled with love and filled with delight when we join together with the church to loudly proclaim his glory. Jesus meets with his people in a special way when they assemble together as his body. And so the church, the church is the place where we are taught, we are nourished, we are blessed with Jesus' presence. God calls you, all of us here, God calls you to a life connected with the body and promises his blessings, his rich blessings will come to you through that connection. Amen?